0: In case 08205, Citizens United versus the FEC, Justice Kennedy has the opinion of the court. When the government seeks to use its full power,
1: including the criminal law, to command where a person may get his or her information or what distrusted source he or she may not hear, it uses censorship to control thought. This is unlawful. The First Amendment confirms the freedom to think for ourselves. On numerous occasions, we have Recognize Congress' legitimate interest in preventing the money that is spent on elections from exerting undue influence on an officeholder's judgment and creating the appearance of such influence. We reject that argument. We conclude that those precedents now must be reexamined. The resulting transparency enables the electorate to make informed decisions and give proper weight to different speakers and different messages. The judgment of the district court is reversed. The case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion.
2: As Speaker of the House, it is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy.
3: With partnership, but with purpose, I pass this great gavel of our government. Today on these steps, we offer this
1: contract as a first step towards renewing American civilization. You know, my
4: father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people. You're listening to Two Ring Circus, a podcast about how Congress works and doesn't work, and why. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller professor of American politics at Portland State University in sunny, rainy, rainbowy Portland, Oregon. In this episode, we look at the tug of war between Congress and the Supreme Court, examining how the power of the court has been used to limit congressional authority, and analyzing the ways that important Supreme Court rulings have impacted congressional elections, the makeup of Congress, and the present day conflicts within the institution. Probably the single most influential Supreme Court ruling of the past half century in terms of its impact on our electoral system and on the makeup and functioning of Congress is 2010's Citizens United vs. FEC. For our first segment, our intrepid and tireless Nigel Wilkerson will examine what's in this landmark case and how it has impacted Congress.
1: Selling out is easy to do. It's not so hard to find a buyer for you who. When money talks,
4: yeah. Conflicts between the three branches of government are built into the American constitutional system, though the most notable clash between the Supreme Court and the legislative power of Congress isn't actually explicitly outlined in the Constitution itself. The power of judicial review, the ability of the federal courts to declare acts of the legislative or executive branch null and void, isn't directly stated in the Constitution, but it has been central to the functioning of the Supreme Court since 1803's groundbreaking ruling in Marbury v. Madison. It's this power that's at the heart of Citizens United, in which the court declared significant features of the 2002 Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act unconstitutional, rendering relatively toothless Congress's bipartisan attempt to regulate the role of money in federal elections. The impacts are far-reaching, but first let's look at what the ruling actually said. The case involved a clash between two previous court rulings on election law, Buckley v. Vallejo and Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce.
5: In Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976, the court had indicated that the First Amendment does not allow political speech restrictions based on a speaker's corporate identity. In that case, the court drew a distinction between pocket-to-pocket campaign contributions, which go from a corporation directly to a political candidate, and independent expenditures, which support a particular candidate but don't directly go into the candidate's pocket. The Buckley Court held that statutory limits on corporate contributions are generally constitutional, but restrictions on independent expenditures aren't. But the court took a different tack in Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce in 1990. In that case, the court found that corporate wealth corrupts the political process and that corporations' independent expenditures to advocate for or against a political candidate can be constitutionally restricted. Writing for a five to four majority, Justice Kennedy determined that Austin went too
4: far. Here's Justice Kennedy in his own words, reading the ruling before the assembled court.
1: If the First Amendment has any force, it prohibits Congress from fining or jailing citizens or associations of citizens for simply engaging in political speech. Austin and its rationale, however, however, would allow the government to ban corporations from expressing political views through any media. Political speech is indispensable to decision-making in a democracy, and this is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. Austin's rationale would produce the dangerous, and unacceptable consequence, that Congress could ban political speech of media corporations. Media corporations are now exempt from 441B's ban on political speech, but they amass wealth like other business corporations. So under Austin, the government could could diminish the voice of the media business. Austin interferes with the open marketplace of ideas protected by the First Amendment. Austin allows the government to ban the political speech of millions of associations of citizens, thereby silencing the voices that may best represent the most significant segments of the economy. When the government seeks to use its full power, including the criminal law, to command where a person may get his or her information or what distrusted source he or she may not hear, it uses censorship to control thought. This is unlawful. The First Amendment confirms the freedom to think for ourselves. Our precedent is to be respected, unless the most convincing of reasons demonstrates that adherence to us puts us on a course that is sure error. For the reasons just stated and others explained in some detail in the court's quite lengthy opinion, we now overrule Austin. Austin was not well-reasoned, experience is undermined it. We return to the principle set forth in our pre-Austin line of cases that the government may not suppress political speech on the basis of the speaker's corporate identity.
4: We should note that in the eyes of the legal system, a corporation isn't just a big company like Walmart or Google. In constitutional terms, a corporate entity is an association of individuals, often a non-profit one, potentially, like the Citizens United Group itself, quite small. Although the ruling applies to all associations, including non-profits and unions, it's really the big money organizations, now known as super PACs, that have impacted American politics in the wake of the Citizens United ruling. These organizations, while still barred from making direct contributions to candidates' campaigns, can spend unlimited amounts of money on so-called electioneering communications, that is, advertisements supporting and attacking particular candidates.
3: I think the fact that more people are speaking out is a good thing for America, not a bad thing. What Citizens United basically did was level the playing field. Prior to Citizens United, if you were a company that owned a newspaper, you could say whatever you wanted to about any candidate, up to and including the day of the election, including endorsing one. But if you were a corporation that wasn't lucky enough to own a newspaper, you weren't. So all Citizens United basically did was to level the playing field for corporate America and for union America and say, you, like a media company, can participate, not in giving directly to candidates. That's still prohibited, and it should be. I don't have any, any problem with that. But to independently express your views about anything in this country. Why shouldn't everybody be free to do that? And so I think it was a terrific decision. I don't think there's any uh, harmful consequences to come out of it. Everybody's free to have their fair say.
4: That was then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking in 2011, a year after the Supreme Court handed down its ruling. He said that there are no harmful consequences to come out of Citizens United, but in the dozen years since he spoke those words, we've been able to see what the ruling would do to American elections and American politics. The universe of Super PACs, a multi-billion dollar industry of campaign spending, functions as a kind of shadow campaign, operating separate from but parallel to the official campaigns, which are still highly regulated by federal law, restricting pocket-to-pocket contributions, and in the wake of Citizens United, are often outspent by Super PACs operating on candidates' behalf. Super PAC operations generally were down to the benefit of anti-establishment outside candidates, who have infiltrated American politics in record numbers over the last decade. The ability of wealthy individuals and well-funded organizations to weigh in on elections, particularly primary elections for safe seats, has contributed to political polarization by giving a boost to some of the most ideologically extreme of candidates. Since the 2012 election, the first to feature super PACs unleashed by the Citizens United ruling, Congress has become increasingly polarized, not just between the parties, but within them as well. Unlike establishment party leaders and mainstream political actors, super PAC donors are generally uninterested in pragmatism or compromise. And until billions of dollars supporting moderate, pragmatic, compromise-oriented candidates materializes, quite unlikely in my opinion, the trend towards party polarization and intractable internal schisms within the parties themselves is unlikely to be reversed. All of this contributes to what has been an increasingly dysfunctional and inoperable Congress of the United States of America. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, reporting... From America. Selling
2: out, I'd
1: rather call it compromise. Is easy to do. Sometimes you have to close your eyes. It's not so hard. Being rich is no disgrace. To find a buyer for
4: you. On your As we've already discussed on this podcast, a large number of safe seats present Congress with various problems. Most notably, they invite polarization by shifting electoral power from the general election, where all voters have a say, to the primary, where a party's most engaged and usually most extreme members determine the outcome. With the increased influence of money-amplified ideological voices via the Citizens United ruling, primaries have become a breeding ground for the intransigent ideologues most likely to oppose compromise and intentionally grind congressional business to a halt. Much of this has to do with gerrymandering. Partisan gerrymandering has been raised to a highly sophisticated level through the power of information technology. According to the Cook Political Report, there are currently around 360 solidly safe seats in the House, with another 28 in the likely category for each party leaving only 21 leaning seats and 25 truly toss-up seats. So a maximum of only 10% of House seats are potentially competitive. Safe seats can never be fully eliminated from the electoral landscape, even under the most neutral conditions. States with independent district commissions still have some safe seats, though far fewer than gerrymandered states. And in the Senate, where gerrymandering cannot take place, well over half of the seats are safe for one party or the other. We are, however, far from having neutral conditions. And to a certain extent, the Supreme Court is responsible for this situation, or at least it hasn't done anything to cure the problem, which is the power of state legislatures to draw favorable maps and limit voting rights in a way that further erodes competitiveness where gerrymandering hasn't completely done away with it already. For half a century, the Voting Rights Act, passed by Congress in 1965 and reauthorized with bipartisan majorities five times in subsequent decades, most recently 2006, was something of a safeguard against state legislatures reducing participation among certain voters, typically minorities and poorer people. The VRA was able to sustain some level of competitiveness in states and counties that might otherwise elect large numbers of Republicans to relatively safe seats. The Supreme Court, however, overturned an important aspect of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 with its 5-4 ruling in Shelby County v. Holder. The following interview was conducted on C-SPAN on June 25, 2013, soon after the ruling was announced.
2: You wrote that the High Court rolled back a landmark law that opened the polls to millions of Southern blacks. What did the Supreme Court decide?
6: The the Supreme Court decided that a key part of the Voting Rights Act, the preclearance requirement, which requires uh, some states, about parts of 15 states, to submit any voting changes to to Congress, that the preclearance requirements formula for determining which states are covered was unconstitutional because Congress didn't base that formula on current conditions.
2: So what does this mean for Congress?
6: For Congress,
2: it means that uh, the court
6: left, at least as a formal matter, left intact the Voting Act, the Voting Act rights uh, preclearance requirement. But it leaves it to Congress if it wants to, if, if lawmakers uh, choose to, to go back and come up with a, a coverage formula that does um, uh, take into account current conditions.
2: Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the, the 37 page dissenting opinion for the court. What does it say?
6: She, she says that the court, that con- well, first of all, she says that, that the court uh, should give much more deference to Congress, that in the area of the, the 14th and 15th Amendment, uh, they, they lay out that uh, Congress has a special role here to protect against discrimination, in this case, discrimination against voting. Uh, And she also says that Congress had ample evidence to show both that uh, racial discrimination in voting uh, is still prevalent, and in particular, still prevalent in the covered jurisdictions.
2: We've heard reaction from some lawmakers that say that the court's decision is judicial activism. What do they mean by that?
6: What they mean is that the court struck down an act of Congress, did not defer, as uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, suggested, did not defer to Congress's findings that indeed the Voting Rights Act and the preclearance requirement is still necessary. Uh, You know, this sort of goes back to an era um, many decades ago when conservatives were accusing the the Warren Court of judicial activism because they were striking down state and federal laws um, on other grounds.
2: The Supreme Court's decision had an immediate effect on at least one state. Uh, What happened there? Uh,
6: That's Texas. Texas uh, has a voter ID law that the Justice Department stopped through the preclearance requirement, and um, uh, a a lower federal court um, said that 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 law could not go into effect, and today the Attorney General of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, said that the law would now go into effect uh, because the court had struck down uh, the, the, the coverage formula and the preclearance requirement.
2: Greg Storr is a Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg News.
4: So where does the court stand on the most direct reason for the prevalence of safe seats, partisan gerrymandering? Although given several opportunities to declare it unconstitutional, the court has repeatedly ruled that claims of unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering present non justiceable political questions. Its most recent ruling was announced on June 27, 2019, when the court delivered another five four ruling in two companion cases, Rucho versus Common Cause and Lamone versus Benisek. Let's listen to Chief Justice Roberts lay out the majority's reasoning.
0: Gerrymandering is the drawing of electoral district lines to favor or discriminate against a particular category of voter. It is, for example, unconstitutional to engage in racial gerrymandering, to draw lines so that African-Americans are packed into a district so they can elect only one candidate of their choice, or dispersed among several districts so they cannot elect any. The question presented here is whether gerrymandering for political purposes is also unconstitutional. The legal question presented is whether such partisan gerrymandering claims are justiciable. That is, whether they are suited for resolution by the federal courts. If there are no judicially discernible and manageable legal standards to decide a claim, then the claim is properly viewed as a political question, not a legal one, and outside the court's jurisdiction. Now, the first place to look to see if there are standards for deciding whether something is unconstitutional is, of course, the Constitution. The people who wrote the Constitution certainly knew about partisan gerrymandering, but the framers didn't put any legal standards about districting into the Constitution. Instead, what they did in the Elections Clause was provide that such issues should be decided by the state legislatures in the first instance, subject to review by the Congress. That's all they said. There's not much to go on there, except to note that nobody thought that the solution was to go to court and have judges figure out what to do.
4: The following is a report from National Public Radio filed on the same day.
7: The Supreme Court has completed its term today. As the justices went out the door, they released a number of decisions, including one on whether and how far lawmakers can go to draw political boundaries that favor their party. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court ruled today essentially that such partisan gerrymandering is beyond their control. In a sharply ideological decision, the court's conservative judges said redistricting claims, quote, present political questions beyond the reach of federal courts. NPR's Miles Parks is covering voting for NPR. He joins us now. Welcome to the studio, Miles. Thank you. So the cases today uh, that the Supreme Court ruled on were from North Carolina and Maryland. Can you give us the details?
8: Sure. So in North Carolina, which is a state that's divided roughly 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, uh, Republicans who controlled the state legislature had drawn maps that favored their party extremely, gave them 10 seats in Congress compared to three seats for the Democrats. In Maryland, it was switched. Democrats controlled the government there and drew districts that basically uh, forced out a longtime Republican incumbent in Maryland's 6th district, which is in the northwest uh, of the state. What's interesting here is that the intent was very clear. Legislators in both states had made it clear that it was partisan gains that they were after when drawing the maps. And the plaintiffs were arguing to the Supreme Court that that should be unconstitutional. Supreme Court, however, did not agree. uh, And they basically pulled the plug on both lawsuits and also on other federal lawsuits that are waiting in the wings in states like Ohio and Wisconsin, also related to partisan uh, gerrymandering. The maps in all these places will stay put.
7: How is this still a debate? I mean, it's a term that goes back to 1812, right? Named for Eldridge Derry. Can you talk about what's going on here?
8: Yeah, absolutely. We have a long, rich history in America of weirdly shaped districts. But it's not like uh, this problem just cropped up yesterday. Uh, About 15 years ago, former Justice uh, Kennedy wrote about it. And he said, basically, this is an issue, but we just need to find a manageable standard by which we can fix it. Flash forward to 2019, we have all of these advanced computers that can do this sort of of statistical analysis that could show you exactly how to draw fair districts. But that didn't seem to sway the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice... Uh, excuse me, Justice Roberts wrote that uh, yes, the practice is does seem to be unseemly, but that it's not the court's place to jump into politics and reapportion political power.
7: So if it's not the court's role, then who's in charge of enforcing limits on redistricting
8: that's uh, a, for clear that, political gain? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it still could theoretically be in the courts. It's just at the state level potentially because partisan gerrymandering could theoretically uh, break some state laws. The other uh, thing that uh, Justice Roberts mentioned in his opinion is that legislation could be written here to fix this problem, either at the federal level through Congress or at the state level through citizen initiatives, which have had success in some states. The thing is, the bottom line is is that it's going to be really different because of all these different state laws, what maps look like in each state because the rules, the, the, the game rules are just going to be different. Let's
7: look ahead to 2020 when new districts are going to be drawn after that election and the census. What does it mean, this ruling mean for all that?
8: Yeah, I talked to Justin Levitt about this. He's an election law professor at Loyola Law School, and here's what he told me.
4: We're in Mad Max territory now. There are no rules. And I do think you'll see more legislators in more states taking up the mantle of extreme partisan aggression against people who disagree with them.
8: The key is this really only matters in states that control the whole of government. But I should say it is both parties. I think uh, there's been this acknowledgement that Republicans took advantage of this process while Democrats were largely ignoring it leading up to the 2010 election. Uh, Democrats are not going to let that happen looking ahead to the 2020 election. They're putting a lot of money into this issue. Both sides are going to be fighting to control the maps after the 2020 election.
7: That's NPR's Miles Parks. Thanks for your reporting. Thank
8: you.
4: While well, Shelby versus Holder and Rucho versus Common Cause aren't the only cases where the court's rulings shape congressional elections— The combination of limiting congressional power under the Voting Rights Act and allowing states to engage in partisan gerrymandering without federal court intervention means that the rules of congressional elections are highly skewed towards the creation of safe seats, and the more safe seats there are in Congress, the more that highly partisan primary elections determine who sits in Congress. Combine that with Citizens United, and those safe seats are increasingly going to the highly ideological members of each party, underwritten by super PACs uninterested in compromise or pragmatism. This makes what's already an obstacle ridden bicameral legislative process nearly impossible to navigate. Well, that's it for episode 10 of Two Ring Circus. Thank you to C SPAN and NPR for their reports, and no thank you to the Supreme Court for its contributions to congressional dysfunction. Speaking of dysfunction, that's the subject of our next and final episode, Till Death Do Us Part. Until then, I'm Dr. Jack Miller. Thanks for listening.
1: Money talks, it has a very soothing voice. You're under its spell. It's up to you to make the choice. Ah, but what do you have when there's nothing nothing left left to sell? You can't always break the rules. People who try are fools. When you get older, maybe then you will see. I've always found ideals. Don't take the place of meals.